According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our uh, growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, we are uh, getting ready for episode 32. In fact, we are starting episode 32 here this morning. Doctrine on Divorce. We concluded our look last week at the parables of uh, the pers- uh, on prayer, the persistent widow and the Pharisee and the tax collector. That was out of Luke 18, and now we're turning to Matthew 19 for episode 32. We will remain here for episode 33 as well, uh, Jesus blessing the children, which has uh, verses uh, in Matthew 18, 19, verses 13, 14, and 15, as well as parallel accounts in uh, Mark 10 and back to Luke again, Luke 18. But I think for the uh, the bulk of our study, we will be in um, the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll use Mark and Luke for parallel uh, details. We'll, we'll use Matthew as our base text for uh, several of these episodes here coming up. All right, Matthew 19. I'm firing up the Bible software, not simply for the Matthew portion, but I'm also going to show you a section out of the Mishnah, which I prepared a slide for it, uh, but I think there's some surrounding context prior to that. I wanted to make sure. Yeah, we can give you some more details on this. We have an entire section of the Mishnah that's given over to divorce. And if we have time, we'll uh, we'll take a look at it because it's uh, interesting if it wasn't so sad. Or sad if it wasn't so interesting, <laughs> as far as that goes. So as we have time, if I can preload it, then we'll uh, we'll be in good shape. Gittin'. All right, save gittin' for later. How y'all doing? All right. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, settle our minds, settle our thinking, and humble ourselves under the authority of truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have one more time to assemble together and receive instruction. Father, we uh, we weren't promised today and we're not promised tomorrow. This may be our final day on earth. And as such, we want to redeem it for the glory of our Savior, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that on this day, on this occasion, we have freedom and the opportunity to come together and, and uh, study your truth. So, Father, as we open the truth of your word one more time, we ask for your faithfulness to guide us into all things, even the deep things of God. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to our souls. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, This is episode 32, the doctrine on divorce. We're going to use mainly Matthew 19. Uh, There is a parallel text in in Mark 10, but um, the details there are largely parallel and identical. And other than some vocabulary quirks and some other issues, I don't think that um, we'll need to necessarily turn there a whole lot here in the process of this. 
All right, Matthew 19:1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And this is the geography of what we're dealing with in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read what... Uh, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And that finishes his class. And once this class is done, then the Pharisees, who already knew what answer they expected they were going to hear from him anyway, they immediately are able to jump up with their, yeah, but, all right, yeah, but. You've encountered this yourself, and you've had conversations with people, and they'll say, yeah, but. They'll say, yeah, that might be true, but here's something else. Here's another opinion. So they say, yeah, but. Um, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And their use of the term command there is very interesting because Moses never commanded anybody uh, to divorce, but there was a stipulation of permission that was granted under certain circumstances. And so we're going to spell this out as well. Never command, but permitted under certain circumstances. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And so he's going to take it to the beginning to try to impact their thinking in terms of what the directive will is. What is God's purpose in marriage and what does he intend for us to accomplish? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. All right, so that's uh, down through verse 9. The disciples have a bit of a reaction here. They find that uh, this is a bit unreasonable. The disciples then said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Verses 10 through 12 are interesting. We're not going to be that far today, but just file that away in your mind, and we'll deal with that here coming up as as a principle of application as well, dealing with celibacy and circumstances that apply there. All right. Pharisee questions. What are we starting with here? And by the way, it's not the first time we've covered divorce. We covered divorce already back in chapter 5. So why does it seem that it's coming up again? Why is it the Pharisees are asking this question again? Well, Pharisee questions were normally designed to trap the Lord. And this one is too. Pharisee questions were normally designed to trap the Lord. In this case, though, there's a trap within a trap. And in this case, it's a no-win scenario as far as the Pharisees are concerned. They're going to win no matter what, or at least some of them are going to win. And this is uh, something I'm going to explain here in just a moment. Pharisee questions were normally designed to trap the Lord, but in this instance, one division of Pharisees was hoping to use the Lord to resolve their in-house debate concerning divorce. The goal here is not to trap him so much. That's already a given. 
Uh, as we've studied this, in particular, the benefit we have of doing the harmony is that we, we get to see the parallel accounts and we understand where this comes in the aftermath of Luke 18, in the aftermath of Luke 17. We understand that they are already on an irreversible course to bring about his death. That's, that's no longer in question. But in the meantime, while they are bringing about his death and before they successfully uh, get him um, dead, they want to be able to uh, benefit from one final item here before they can bring about his murder. And uh, this is uh, coming in the venue of a dispute, an in-house debate that they were having. They actually had several of these debates on a variety of topics. Uh, it's almost... Uh, axiomatic that when you have uh, two rabbis uh, in a room, you have three opinions, <laughs> right? Um, and that's just what's going to happen here in the, in the traditions of what has, what has become at this point now, uh, well, what later would be called rabbinic Judaism, but probably not fair to call it rabbinic Judaism in the first century, but that's where it's headed in the, uh, in the uh, Mishnah traditions of the, of the rabbis. And that's what we're going to look at here. So they have an in-house debate regarding divorce. Uh, strictly speaking, the two dominant schools, the school of Shammai, the school of Shammai, we would call these guys the conservatives, uh, the hardcore, as it were. Um, the school of Shammai, and Shammai himself, the person who founded the school, was alive right at the same time frame that we're talking about. In fact, he has only recently, I believe this is 32 A.D., we're talking about 33 A.D., uh, approaching spring, approaching uh, March, where he makes his triumphal entry in April 3rd when he's crucified. Uh, and so Shammai himself, the person, has been alive within the last three years. He only died in 30 A.D., from 50 B.C. to 30 A.D., living uh, you know, an 80-year span there. For Shammai. Well, he taught that a man could only divorce his wife for a sexual offense. For a sexual offense. And we're going to go to Deuteronomy 24. We're going to see this Mosaic Law stipulations there. And it's, it's a uh, valid interpretation uh, of Deuteronomy, depending upon which uh, expression you emphasize. Where you place the emphasis. And the school of Shammai placed an emphasis uh, in one particular aspect of a Hebrew verse. Uh, the school of Hillel uh, placed an emphasis on that same Hebrew verse. See, one had an emphasis, one had an emphasis. And what's the difference? Okay, it's subtle in some respects. And yet the ramifications can be widely different depending on what you choose to stress in any verse of Scripture. Okay, and if you go so far as to stress one component to the detriment of another component, then you're being unfair to the Scriptures. Because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And you can't diminish one verse in order to magnify improperly another verse. All verses should be equally magnified because God has exalted His entire Word in accordance with His name. That's going to become clear as well. I think this, this whole debate that the, the school of Shemaine and the school of Hillel had matches to a large extent Christianity <laughs> in the post-Reformation debates of sovereignty and free will. Into the sense that the Calvinist end of the spectrum wanted to magnify sovereignty so much so that they diminished Bible passages that spoke of volition, that spoke of free will. Even to the extent that a denial of that free will even exists becomes the, the end result of most Calvinists when they think it through. 
versus the Armenian side, they so stress volition that they, they write off sovereignty like sovereignty isn't what you and I would define it as. Okay? And that's the error. Because the sovereignty verses can't be diminished and can't be ignored. Neither can the volitional verses be diminished and ignored. And so both sides make that mistake of minimizing certain passages so as to magnify the ones they like. Well, you can't do that. You can't take away from God's word. And that's what you do when you selectively minimize and selectively emphasize particular components. And that's what we see here. And I'll illustrate that as well. So the school of Shammai, the competing school is the school of Hillel, the school of Hillel. And remarkably enough, don't think that, oh, these guys are the liberals. All right. They were both very conservative. Both parties are conservative parties. The Pharisees were all conservative uh, in their theology. But the school of Hillel did permit divorce for almost any reason at all. Virtually, if you could name a reason, and if it was a reason enough in your mind, well, then it's a reason. And if you have a reason, then you're permitted to divorce. That's the school of Hillel position. Hillel was a little bit earlier than Shammai. They overlapped to a large extent, but Hillel was the older. From 60 B.C. to 20 A.D., Hillel was really, in the decades later, he was the one that was more esteemed. Um, probably not so much for his own sake. There was a Hillel the Younger that followed him, and then there was Gamaliel. And Gamaliel followed that tradition of Hillel. Gamaliel, then, is really the one that brought this school to uh, a great preeminence i might have my order on that backwards but um it's been a while since i've read up on my gamaliel but who sat at the feet of gamaliel the apostle paul that's right and recognize he was a pharisee of the pharisees he was the pinnacle of pharisaic righteousness as to the righteousness found in the law he was blameless he was the pinnacle of human achievement under legalism and that would have been under uh, the school of Hillel. Uh, of which Gamaliel there was a representative. All right. So And so when you go back and you reread this question then, Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Notice now, for any reason at all, look what they're doing. They are specifically taking the school of Hillel position and asking Jesus to evaluate that. Telling Jesus, are you a Hillel guy? <laughs> or are you a Shammai guy? Pick a side. Okay, and here's the trap. This is not like in previous episodes where they've been trying to get him to violate Moses or whatever, or accuse him of being a lawbreaker, where they're not looking for a reason to put him to death. They've already decided they're going to do that. But what they're doing now is they're, they're asking him to choose a side in their debate. And they're both mosaic. Both Hillel and Shammai are, are mosaic Adherence. They, they adhere to Moses. They idolize Moses. They've seated themselves in the chair of Moses. But they're asking for him to choose a side in their debate. All right. And, uh, and in so doing, what's the, uh, what's the outcome then? If he picks a side, then what's the result? <laughs> the result is, is that once they do successfully murder him, then the other side of that debate is now identified with a heretic that's been put to death. Okay, so if he chooses the Hillel side, then the Shammai side feels like, well, hey, we win this argument because 
you guys are in agreement with this murderer, with this heretic, with this antichrist, with this false Christ. Remember, he was a false messiah in their view. He's still called that in, the, in their Talmud traditions. All right. So um, the whole point being they want him to choose a side so that after he's dead, <laughs> the group he didn't agree with can hold that over the heads of their opponents in this debate. Make sense? All right. Now, let me put up here, this is a clip from the Mishnah. And the Mishnah, by the way, did not exist in written form during Jesus' lifetime. It was, a, it was uh, collected together from various written documents and compiled about 200 A.D. Um, some of it, uh, the earlier stuff in the early 100s, but uh, this, uh, where the traditions that the written Mishnah was based upon were very much in effect during Jesus' lifetime. In particular, uh, the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. They were current events, current theologians of their day. And so here in uh, the, the section called Gittin, um, chapter 9, if you want to use the term chapter, and verse 10, um, regarding divorce. Now, the whole of Gittin, Nine full chapters now is all about divorce, and this is kind of the conclusion to a much larger context. So the house of Shammai say, a man should divorce his wife only because she has found grounds for it in, or he has found grounds for it in unchastity. And notice they're going to quote scripture. Since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. All right. Because he has found in her indecency in anything. Turn with me over here to uh, Deuteronomy 24, and let's look at it. Of course, the Mishnah was written in Hebrew, and what you have on the screen here is a, a King James-ish English translation of, uh, of the uh, text. It's a remarkable testimony to the King James that when scholars started to translate the Mishnah into English, or they started to translate the Church Fathers into English, or they started to translate... Uh, other texts, Greek and Hebrew texts, into English. Often they they got <coughs> King Jamesy, they got Elizabethan in some of their English renderings, which is interesting. This is not that old of a translation, really. It's a 20th century translation, <coughs> but I find it uh, interesting how they would use a word like unchastity. That's not exactly a modern approach. All right. Anyway, where am I turning? I'm turning to Deuteronomy. 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens, notice, he takes a wife and he marries her. Just keep that in mind for Hosea next Sunday, okay? Um, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. He has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends it out from her house. So, in stressing the idea of indecency, because he has found in her indecency in anything, in anything, or we don't have the in anything in my text, but the some, okay? He has found some indecency in her. We have a King James here today. Is there a King James Bible? Do they have in anything there? Or I can pull that up too. Anyway, the, the emphasis on the indecency was what the school of Shammai took. Okay? Indecency. And, of course, an understanding of, well, what's that word mean and what does it signify and what's the, is it, is it sexual or is, could it be something except for sexual? And it could be, but 
it was mostly a sexual application. And so that's what Shammai locked in on. And they emphasized that word. And that, so they ruled that divorce was permitted or even commanded if, in fact, indecency was discovered. Adultery or fornication, harlotry was discovered. All right. But then the house of Hillel says, even if she spoiled his dish, in other words, burning dinner, <laughs> all right, burning dinner, if she, if she burns the dinner, well, that's grounds for divorce. And Moses said so. Why did Moses say so? Because, and here we're not going to stress the word indecency, we're going to stress the phrase in anything. Or the New American Standard translated as some. Some kind of indecency. Anything. Okay? Since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. Okay? And if that preposition then becomes your emphasis, well then it, you don't, you cannot limit the indecency to a sexual indecency. Because now it says in anything. It says some. Some form. Some kind. And it, maybe it's a sexual indecency. Maybe it's a cooking indecency. Maybe it's a house cleaning indecency. Maybe it's a temperament indecency. Right? And so it, they're both quoting scripture. They're both grounding their theology in Deuteronomy 24, but they are zeroing in on a phrase, a term, a word, an expression, okay, to the detriment of another one. Shammai is emphasizing indecency and Hillel is, in, is emphasizing some or in anything, okay. Then there is a third view. Rabbi Akaba goes even beyond burning dinner, uh, spoiling a dish. He says, even if he has found someone else prettier than she. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a pretty loose standard. <laughs> All right. Uh, especially given the fact that, you know, I mean, doesn't matter. You marry the prettiest girl on planet Earth and 40 years later, are there going to be prettier girls around? If all you're looking at is youthful beauty or physical, you know, youthful beauty in terms of that. Okay. And it should be and, and here again. He, too, is basing his ruling, his judgment, his interpretation of the text on what does the text say? And he's not going to stress the indecency word. He's not stressing the in anything preposition. What he's stressing is the expression here. She's found no favor in his eyes. Ah, favor in his eyes. So it's appearance. It's attractiveness. All right. And so that's, you know, the, the wedding vow of, uh, you know, until something better comes along. <laughs> right? Not till death do us part. Goodness. Well, how's that for religion? Okay. And this is what Pharisee legalism can do. And trust me, it's alive and well today. Pharisee legalism has application in Bible churches, doctrinal Bible churches, Baptist churches, any, any church you want to point to. There can be and often is Pharisaic legalism in view. When... Um, 
Scripture gets twisted to say what it is that we want it to say, what it is that agrees with us. And so we'll emphasize what it is that helps the Scripture agree with our opinions, and then we'll teach it as if it's doctrine. But what does the New Testament say? Teaching is doctrines, the precepts of men, right? That's, that's wrong. It's not our word. It's God's word. We can't twist it to agree with us. We have to humble ourselves to agree with what he with what he says. And so there's the issue. OK, now there's more on this. As I said, the um, and I put this up here so that we can have time to. Um, oh, that's right. Let me switch to this. I have discovered that Logos does not like to, Logos 4, um, doesn't like to play well with PowerPoint. They they don't work well together. They're like unruly children. Just put them in different rooms and don't try to run them at the same time. You know, one tiny little verse here in uh, Deuteronomy, or a little paragraph, That says, um, and and we'll go through this because Christ taught this. He taught this in chapter 5. But there is a procedure for severing the marriage relationship legally in the the eyes of the community and the the procedures that have to happen there. And this tiny little uh, section, you would think it's the the preeminent passage in Mosaic Law, right? The way some people approach it. but it's, uh, it's here. And look what they expand upon it. Nine full chapters in the Mishnah. All given over to these few tiny little words, these little verses right here. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. All right. So the crowd that thinks that... Um, Divorce is not an option after marriage um, is, is not paying attention to verse 2. Um, that, that remarriage is a possibility after divorce. Divorce ends the marriage and leaves uh, remarriage ineligible, or eligible there in verse 2. And then verse 3, if that latter husband turns against her and writes her certificate of divorce. Now she is twice divorced. Husband number one and husband number two have both sent her packing. Writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, maybe she's only divorced once and widowed once. Okay? Doesn't matter. Her former husband, husband number one, cannot take her back. Her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. Now, it's not defiled the way we normally think of it, but it is defiled in the ritual purity expected under Mosaic law. For this, that is an abomination before the Lord. In other words, uh, you know, God was not uh, going to tolerate uh, promiscuity just with a marital label to give it a uh, an external uh, uh, sense of being okay. An abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So there's the only restriction on remarriage is that a man was not allowed to remarry his divorced wife, if there had been another man in the meantime. All right. Now, if they had remained unmarried, both of them had remained unmarried, then could they reconcile? 
Yes, in fact, it was welcome. It was recommended. It was it was urged. See, which is why Jesus in Matthew five said, um, you know, remain unmarried or else be reconciled to your husband. That's the stipulation there when he talks about divorce. And we'll look at that as well here in Matthew chapter five. The reason being is that if there is another marriage in between, then the first marriage is never can never be restored. All right. So anyway, that's the. That's the thing there. And then the last item is, if you are newlywed, then you don't go to war. You should not go out with the army or be charged with any duty. He should be free at home one year. It's like pro- parole. <laughs> Probation. You're under house arrest. How about that? It's a, it's a one year, get out of jail free car. No, you don't go to war for a year. You don't want a guy on the battlefield that's all distracted and worried about, uh, about his bride back home. And, uh, you know, if you're in battle, you've got to have your mind on battle. So he should be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Yeah, it's all about, <laughs> it's all about her. Okay. Now, that's it. This is the great mosaic um, Moses passage on divorce. It's not overwhelming. It's not comprehensive. It's a very short deal on divorce. And yet, look what the Pharisees did with it. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. Nine of these chapters in the Mishnah with all of these traditions, all of these stipulations. And um, how must it be worded if you're uh, conducting this divorce from overseas? He who delivers a writ of divorce from overseas must state, and here's the words you have to use, in my presence it was written, and in my presence it was signed. So make sure you have the right notary on your divorce certificate if it's coming from overseas. Rabban Gamaliel says also, he who delivers a writ of divorce from Rechem or from Hagar must make a similar declaration. Rabbi Eliezer says, even from Kiefer Ludum to Lud, and sages say, he must state in my presence. So there's legalese that's being written into this. Specific terminology, language that has to appear. Uh, and if it's not, then it's not a legitimate divorce. And then the courier who carries it, who delivers it from overseas. And uh, But Rabbi Simeon, Ben Gamaliel, says, even if he brings one from, another, from one jurisdiction to another in the same town. We've got to use the overseas procedures, even if it's in the same town, but crossing jurisdictional boundaries within that town. And let's uh, add, of course, Reckham and Ashkelon and Akko and these other territories. Akko is equivalent to the land of Israel so far as the writ of divorce is concerned. Um, now, if you're in the land of Israel, in other words, you're not overseas, then you don't have to state, in my presence it was written, and in my presence it was signed. But if there are disputants against the validity of the writ, it is to be confirmed by signatures. Are you following all this? Actually, none of us are. This, I mean, you've got to be a you got to be a lawyer. You got to have some kind of uh, passion for fine print in order to to thrive on this. But see, this is their religion. This is their passion. This is what they saturate their minds with. Of this rule and that rule and these stipulations and these requirements. I mean, are they are they 
dwelling in the Word of God and occupied with Messiah and focused on the glories of, of Yahweh and walking in the light as He is. None of that. They're saturating their thinking with stipulations and legal stipulations and requirements and this and that and details. All the same are writs of divorce for women and writs of emancipation for slaves. <laughs> oh yeah, it's all the same. Um, they're treated as equivalent. Oh, we've got a Samaritan as a witness. That's a problem. All right, any sort of writ in which there is a Samaritan witness, that's invalid. Okay, except for writs of divorce for women and writs of emancipation for slaves. We'll allow them to be witnesses for divorce proceedings, but generally speaking, Samaritans are not trustworthy. All right. Yeah, that's enough on that. Have, have, have you got the drift? You caught the drift on that? And so this is, and this is only chapter one. This is only chapter one. Oh, and what happens if you want to retract a writ? Can you, can you invalidate a writ that you've already issued? Can you retract it and stay married? And, and other things there. Anyway, that's, that's enough on that. Let's get our slideshow back running again. So, here are these legally minded religious nitpickers, and they're trying to get Jesus to choose a side. And what side is he going to choose? <laughs> you know what? He doesn't pick a side. He says, I'm on God's side. What does the scripture say? It was the same approach he took when Satan was tempting him. Satan had three temptations. What does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy. And so, here are these guys. And what does he do? Well, last time he quoted Deuteronomy, and that didn't seem to work for him. So now he's going to go and he's going to quote Genesis. He's going to take it back to the beginning. So is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Have you not read? <laughs> you know, with the devil, he said, It is written. Okay? Gagraptai. It is written. And it is written is as powerful as it is finished. It is a, it is a perfect passive participle. It's not to tell us die, it is die, but it is, it is a, a formula that is just powerful. It is written. Are some of the most encouraging words Jesus ever said. It is written. In other words, if it's in the Bible, then we live by it. This is our confidence. This is our application. This is our hope. Well, with, the, with Satan, he said it is written. With these Pharisees, he says, have you not read... Oh, that's insulting. That's, uh, that's demeaning. That's, oh my goodness. Asking a Pharisee if he's not read Genesis is like, are you kidding me? You know how insulting that is? It's almost like saying, what are you, a blithering, illiterate buffoon? Don't you know this? How dumb can you be? Have you not read? I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent where we could, uh, you know, it'd be like asking... Tiger Woods, if he's ever hold a, ever held a golf club or something, right? You know, have you ever caddied for anybody? Anyway, it's highly insulting, as he says, "Have you not read?" So here's your point. Point two: Jesus used Genesis to demonstrate that divorce is never the directive will of God. Jesus used Genesis to demonstrate that divorce is never the directive will of God. Permissive will, yes. And we'll study 
the uh, permission that's granted. But it's never commanded. Even if it's permitted, it's not commanded. And Jesus used Genesis to demonstrate that. And we're going to go back and we're going to look at Genesis 2.24 here. We're going to see the, the descriptions on things. And it's interesting because he, when he says, have you not read? And he says, from the beginning, it was not this way. And um, they say, well, why did Moses command? And that's a mistake. Moses never commanded. It was given as a permission. It was given as a, um, as a uh, really as a testimony to grace more than anything because of hardness of heart is what, uh, how the Lord explains it here. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you, not commanded, permitted. And that correction right there is critical. They're trying to use the language of, of commanded, and he stops and says, no, no, permitted. All right? And for us, we need to embrace that. That's why we teach the doctrine of directive will, the doctrine of permissive will. There's a huge difference. And then, of course, the overruling will, as uh, we've studied it recently in the book of Jonah. Now, this is not the first time he's taught on divorce. Previously, Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Jesus has already referenced Deuteronomy in his messages pertaining to marriage after the fall. This is an issue they brought up before. And when they brought it up, he used Deuteronomy. He said, what does the scripture say? Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. If you want a comprehensive doctrine on divorce, you have to include Deuteronomy. You have to include Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Maybe you take all of those passages and combine them all. Don't minimize any of them. Don't magnify any of them to the expense of the others, but put them all on an equal level in, in terms of teaching the comprehensive study. That's why we study inductively. We take every element of evidence into consideration. So in Matthew 5... Uh, verses 31 and 32, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now notice it wasn't commanded, but if, but as a matter of being permitted, if a man was going to divorce his wife, then what's the requirement? What's being commanded? That it has to be certified. It has to be written. It has to be documented. It has to be a matter of public record. Written documentation. So that there is no um, confusion in the community. So there's no room for abuse. So there's no fear uh, on the part of, uh, of anyone else that, uh, that they're uh, going to commit adultery with a married woman. No, you're not going to commit adultery with a married woman. She's not a married woman anymore. Here's the certificate of divorce. This is done. You want to marry her, you can marry her. So the command wasn't to divorce your wife, but the command was if, under permissive will, you are divorcing your wife, then let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for unchastity, and there it is. And this is why I, the, the agreement with Deuteronomy 24 is important, because that's the indecency of Deuteronomy 24, the issue there of uh, fornication, a sexual offense here makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is very much on board with Deuteronomy 24 when he's teaching this in, uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. 
All right. Now, so previously he had referenced Deuteronomy 24 in his messages pertaining to marriage after the fall. But now, what's he going to do? On this occasion, Jesus took his message back to marriage before the fall. Jesus took his message to marriage back before the fall. He goes back to demonstrate that in Genesis chapter 2, God established marriage in a pre-fall reality of what it was designed to accomplish, of what its purpose was supposed to be, and how it's going to work. So on this occasion, Jesus took his message back to marriage before the fall. So you understand, there's a difference between chapter 5 and chapter 19 of Matthew. In chapter 5, he's referencing Mosaic Law and describing the realities of marriage after the fall when hardness of heart is a reality. In Matthew 19, now he's going to go back before the fall and teach the original establishment of marriage. Because in the original establishment, we find the, the pinnacle. We find the, the, uh, the uh, preeminent understanding of what God intends for marriage to be. And so... Uh, which do we want to listen to? We want to learn from Matthew 5 or Matthew 19? We're going to pick one and ignore the other? No. We're going to apply them both. They're both true. They're both proper. They're both, both appropriate. And in our doctrinal evaluations of marriage today, we need, to, we need to factor in the realities of the fall. We need to factor in the realities of where we are in, this fallen, in fallen bodies in a fallen world, where hardness of heart does take place. And uh, we can't be oblivious to the realities of hardness of heart and a post-fall condition that you have two sinners and the two become one flesh, but they still have two sin natures. And, uh, and very ugly things can happen in, in, uh, in marriage that do result in divorce, as ugly as that is. All right. So he takes it back to marriage before the fall. What do we have in Genesis 2? What do we have in Genesis 2? The perfect marriage. Yours isn't, mine isn't, but this one is. Okay? This one is perfect. Oh, it's interesting. Adam didn't have a mother in law. I'm not sure what that means. I have a wonderful mother in law. I'll testify to that any day of the week. Have you not read? That in the beginning, God created them male and female. I'm going to give you six principles here. Five, I'm sorry. Five principles related to marriage in the beginning. First of all, humanity was biologically designed for male-female partnership. Say, Pastor, you're getting kind of stupid here today. Isn't this obvious? Not in our culture. All right. In our culture, things that should go without saying need to be said and need to be said loud and need to be said uh, repeatedly. Humanity was biologically designed and by biological, of course, bios life. Adam was created with bios life. He was created with psuche life. He was created with pneuma life from the standpoint of the breath of lives that were poured into him. And his bios life, his physical, biological life, Designed for male-female partnership. And he recognized it's not good for the man to be alone. <laughs> he's naming the animals. He's tending the garden. But uh, he's not reproducing. 
And he doesn't have a partner for the work that he's commanded to do. Secondly, humanity was psychologically designed for father-mother-child raising. Psychologically designed. We have bios life. We also have psuche life, which is the soul. Humanity was psychologically designed for father-mother-child raising. We have biological life. We have psychological life. And what do we find out here in Genesis chapter 2? A man shall leave his father and mother. How about that? Father and mother in raising a child. You say, well, doesn't that go without saying? Again, in our culture, the cosmos evil tells you that, oh, well, you know, Heather has two mommies, right? Or father and father. There's nothing wrong with that. They say, oh, yeah, two fathers can raise a child just like a father and a mother can raise a child. Or two mothers can raise a child just like a father and mother can raise a child. No, that is not true. Not biblically. And I don't believe even uh, remarkably enough you would think that these godless characters would at least, I mean, if you're going to be godless, then go ahead and embrace Darwinian evolution while you're at it. And many of them do. But uh, it just, to me, it's internally nonsensical that they're going to be a godless, atheistic, evolutionary type proponent. And under an evolutionary model, under survival of the fittest, uh, fittest homosexuals don't reproduce. They're not designed to, I mean, if you're going to be an evolutionist, See, to me, if you're going to be a biblicist or an evolutionist, both groups ought to recognize that lesbians and homosexuals don't raise children. But what do I know? All right. Psychologically designed. Psychologically designed. The soul development. A baby is born and he is not uh, physically adult. He's physically infantile. And psychologically infantile. And the nurturing of that soul, the nurturing of that soul to go from infant to toddler to child to adolescent to young adult to adult, that is a process that requires parenting. Psychologically designed for father, mother, child raising. It's not just keeping a nest and feeding food. It's not just, you know, shoving worms down your bird's beak. Okay? Animals feed their young. Parents nurture the souls of their children. Understand the difference? I'm preaching to the choir today, so that's all right. Um, humanity was biologically designed for male-female partnership. Humanity was psychologically designed for father-mother-child raising. Thirdly, humanity was generationally designed. Humanity was generationally designed for leaving and cleaving. Humanity was generationally designed for leaving and cleaving. By design. You know, there's a time when little girls quit looking at their daddies and they start looking at <clears throat> boys. All right. Boys that are not their brothers and not their daddies. <laughs> All right. And it's supposed to happen that way. Dads don't like it, but they need to adjust. Just pray for me. All right. Next Sunday marks the 20th anniversary of when I arrived at Austin Bible Church. 
And uh, the last 20 years are too many blessings to count and lots of things I celebrate and rejoice over. But the next 10 are going to be interesting <laughs> as far as that goes. The next 20, what are that, what's going to happen there? All right. Generationally designed for leaving and cleaving. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, that doesn't mean you abandon them, you forsake them, you never see them again, you, you flee the country, you never lay eyes on them again. No. But what is the significance of leaving? It has to do with the soul nurturing. The adult soul is no longer under the parental soul nurturing. And they are now generationally accountable as adult sons of Adam. Generationally accountable. The, the uh, parents have completed their task of soul nurturing and cleaving to one another. Meaning that the man's soul and the woman's soul are what is going to sustain them in their role for nurturing the next generation of offspring that come along. Leaving and cleaving. So uh, for this reason, and this is the uh, Adam's conclusion based upon the nature of God's creation. God didn't just grab some extra dust from outside of Adam to make a woman. He grabbed the bone from within Adam to make the woman. And so she is not only designed for him perfectly, but she is a part of him, literally. And it is only with her that he is complete. And so it is for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined. That's the King James, the cleaving. Be joined to his wife. And we haven't even gotten to sex yet. This is... Souls in the joining. The two become one flesh. We, we understand there's two things that are happening here. The joining and the one flesh. So humanity was generationally designed for leaving and cleaving. Very rarely is it going to be the case that a man will be permitted, designed, allowed, blessed, gifted um, to not have a soul complement. Very rarely. It's not because he's, he's lustful and he wants to have sex. It's because his soul is designed to be completed unless, in the rarest of cases, God sets a man apart and satisfies his soul without a helpmate to fill that role. And that's described in Corinthians as being the exception rather than the rule. Alright, cleaving precedes copulation. Cleaving precedes copulation he shall be joined to his wife in a lifelong marital commitment cleaving precedes copulation the lifelong marital commitment precedes the one flesh I'm just taking verse 24 and outlining it in a sequence according to the Hebrew text. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is interesting, too, in the sense that um, the design, and don't get confused with culture, don't get all confused over uh, the ancient world's differences with the modern world and whatever. I'm just showing you the design of generational soul preparation and generational accountability before the Lord. But the uh, 
departure from the father's nurturing and shepherding does not occur until the joining to the spouse. In other words, the pattern that's here would have uh, the, the child go under parental authority to the marital relationship. The idea of leaving home and living the bachelor life and or leaving, uh, you know, living an adult unmarried life kind of a thing is not featured in this in this verse. That the joining to his wife is the occasion for leaving the father's authority. Does that make sense? And that's the the pattern that's here. So, in any event, why is that? Is that because a man uh, can't make it on his own? Is it because he can't? Or no, we're not talking about can't, and we're not talking about a woman either. Uh, you know, that leaves home and goes off to school and has an apartment or does whatever. What we're saying is that there's a pattern here for souls that are being prepared for adult capacity, and souls that that are either, in the case of a young man, being prepared to be a husband. Or a young woman going from the father's protection to the husband's protection is the uh, pattern that we have here. All right. So cleaving precedes copulation. And this is the, of course, perfect agreement with what's going to happen in Mosaic law a thousand years later is that uh, until marriage, sexual activity is out of bounds, which is the fifth. Well, the fifth principle. What else happens here? The two become one flesh, but it follows the joining We want to understand something. Intercourse is an outer man and inner man activity. This is point five. Sexual intercourse is an outer man and inner man activity. We've recently taught the distinctions between outer man and inner man in in Corinthians. And so this is this should be very familiar as a concept. The outer man, of course, is the obvious. It's what everybody thinks about when you think about sex. But the inner man activity as well. The Bible makes it clear. And so for this, I would add, in addition to what we have here, you know, the joining preceded the the, uh, one flesh and uh, the souls were knit before the bodies came together. But in addition to this, uh, Genesis 34, Song of Solomon and 1 Corinthians three other passages of Scripture that uh, I think when you compile them together and, again, inductively evaluate everything Scripture has to say about this, I think it, uh, it paints a pretty clear picture. What happens in Genesis 34? Oh, well, it's a horrible story. Tragic story. Yeah, the rape of Dinah. Yeah. And... Uh, But what happens in the aftermath of this, um, here's Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, who she had born to Jan. She went out to visit the daughters of the land. So she's out from under her father's shepherding protection, her brother's shepherding protection, and she's living here with the Canaanite daughters. Is that a healthy place to be living? Are these the best of roommates? <laughs> Is this uh, the good career path for her? And uh, so Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, Hamor's the king, Shechem's the prince, the prince of the land, saw her, he raped her. He took her and lay with her by force. But notice, he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. 
All right. Now, this, this is a verse that some people struggle with and they don't believe. So I believe it because God said it. But I believe that after the ugliness of the rape, either through you know regret on his part, shame on his part, he's not a believer, but he was raised with some kind of moral, some kind of standard, and he had regrets over what he'd done. Not only did he have that, but he had an attraction towards her. That's, that's just the plain language of the scripture here. So he spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young girl for a wife. Okay. What I've done was wrong, but I want to do something right. I want to move forward. I want to marry this girl. I can't just send her out in the world as a harlot. All right. And, you know, similar things happen when, you know, girl gets pregnant. And the boy says, oh, okay, I'll, uh, we'll get married. We'll raise this baby. We'll do the right thing. He has a... Uh, what they did was wrong, but they want to move forward on a, on a correct basis. And so uh, other things that happen here. Notice when Hamor comes to speak to Jacob about it. He says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. It's a soul function. This is long after the sex was done. This is long after other things. This is a soul connection. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us and give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. And this is how people groups could be united in, in uh, alliances and business dealings and, and uh, blessings. And uh, to, be, to be intermarried with the king is like the pinnacle of earthly blessings. But we see the soul connection there. And even... Uh, the thing here. And of course, they're going to trick him into getting circumcised. And while they're, the men of the land are in their recovery from the circumcision is when they're going to get massacred. They're going to get murdered here in this, in this process. All right. That's one passage. Song of Solomon. We've got one minute left. Goodness. Let's do Corinthians and then go back to Song of Solomon. First Corinthians 6. Because we did this uh, not too long ago in Corinthians Understand what one flesh is about. One flesh is the work of God. God made them one flesh. A man and a woman have sex, but God made them one flesh. And this includes something that's often overlooked. We taught this in 1 Corinthians 6.16. He says, Do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Understand that. Even if it's a one-night stand, even if it's a one-time deal, even if you never see the girl again, even if she's a, a harlot on the side of the road or on a business trip, and you never, you are one flesh. God has connected you. You connected your bodies, but God has connected you in the sphere of one flesh. And look what happens in verse 17. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There's another side to the one flesh coin, and this passage calls it, identifies it as the one spirit reality. So there's your connection. The one flesh relationship is the flip side of the coin of the one spirit. Why are souls knit together when bodies come together? This is the dynamic of what happens. 
This is how God designed it. And this is what God does. What God has put together, let no man separate. And so even if it's just a single sexual episode, the reality is testified there that it is a one flesh, one spirit reality. All right, now, so that's why we get these warnings in Song of Solomon and why we need to warn our children, why we need to warn ourselves. Song of Solomon. Now I'm a minute over. Song of Solomon. How many times do we see soul here? This is a very sexual book. There's a lot of physical attraction. There's a lot of uh, passion and, and, uh, and, and that. But behind it, behind all the physical, is the soul. She says in one seven, Tell me, O you whom my soul loves. It's a soul love. Where do you pasture your flock? Why, uh, why should I be like one who veils herself? Why, should I, uh, why do you treat me like a, a passing uh, harlot here going flock to flock? There's a soul love there in verse 7. And what are the warnings? Look at chapter 3. On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. Night after night after night, waking, dreaming, sleeping. Can't, uh, can't shake the memories, the images, the attachments. You know, time and time again, I forget how many total, but there's a ton of these times. Uh, there's one right there in three five. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. You are playing with fire if you light that fuse too early. And what's too early? Pre-marriage. <laughs> That's right. Till you leave your father and mother and cleave to one another, then arouse and awaken love. In fact, arouse it and awaken and arouse it more and awaken it more and keep arousing and keep awaking. Once the the cleaving takes place, then man, God designed this to be a pinnacle, to be the uh, tremendous blessing that it is, but only within the boundaries that He establishes. The rest of it just causes society to plunge into disaster. All right, well... um, Let me close with this principle. Do not save that for next week. All right. Come back next week. All right. More to do, more to learn. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.